Shalom. Welcome to another episode of Inspiration from Zion. I'm Jonathan Feldstein, and I have the privilege of being your host, coming to you from the Judean Mountains here in Israel. I like to refer to it as the original Bible Belt. Inspiration from Zion is a program of the Genesis 1-2-3 Foundation, whose mission is to build bridges between Jews and Christians, and Christians with Israel in ways that are new, unique, and meaningful. I pray that you will find this, all of those. Through this program, we're excited to connect you to people and stories in and relating to Israel, giving you a window to look through, experiencing aspects of life here that you might not otherwise know about. We want this to be interactive, so please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com and send along any questions and any comments about any topic, anytime. Or you can reach us at genesis123.co or follow and like Inspiration from Zion on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please stay tuned until the end of the program. We're also going to share an exciting opportunity for you. And please feel free to share this with others who you know who may also find it of interest. So next week, if you're not attuned to the biblical calendar, the Jewish calendar, we will be celebrating the Jewish people all around the world, a wonderful festival holiday, Purim. Purim is when we celebrate the history that we recount in the book of Esther of the salvation of the Jewish people in in uh, Persia about 2,500 years ago. And it's a fascinating holiday, and there's so much to dig into. And today what I've done is invited a guest who we've had before, and I honestly, I said it when we had our first conversation some months ago that wanted to make an opportunity to have her back. Um, she's one of the best Bible teachers I know. And honestly, I was thinking as I was preparing for this conversation, that really I'm having this conversation in a sense is a personal privilege for me, just because I want to hear what she has to say. But because you're listening, I'm going to share it with you and you're going to find it as good as I do. Sandra Barris is the director of the Israel office of CFOIC Heartland. She was born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, in an Orthodox Jewish home. She was educated at the Hebrew Academy of Cleveland, a religious all-day school. Upon graduation from high school, Sandra studied at the Jerusalem College for Women. Then she received her bachelor's degree in history and English at Barnard College in New York and her JD at Columbia University School of Law. In 1984, after practicing law in New York, Sandra moved to Israel, where she continued her legal practice. In 1985, her family joined Neve Eliza, a group of North American Orthodox Jews that were building a new neighborhood in the small Samaritan town of Karnei Shomron, which is no longer so small. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, the first intifada began, and Sandra was drawn into advocating for and is the spokesperson of the Jewish communities of Judea and Samaria. Sandra has been connected with CFOIC Heartland since its inception in 1995, and in 1998, she opened the Israel office in order to enhance the organization's activities in support of Jewish communities in Judea and Samaria and Gaza. As director of, Israel, of the Israel office, Sandra coordinated with much of CFOIC Heartland's programs around the world. CFOIC Heartland is the only Christian organization to fo focus exclusively on the communities in Judea and Samaria, the heartland of biblical Israel. CFOIC Heartland raises funds for the communities and encourages tourism to biblical sites here. They are a great resource for connecting Christians to the people and the, of biblical Israel while working in close cooperation with Christian organizations in the land 
and with Jewish organizations interested in linking with Christians from around the world. Sandra and her husband, Edward, have raised five children in Carnation Rhone, where they still reside. In her spare time, she enjoys spending time with her grandchildren and studying and teaching Bible, which is her greatest passion. Sandra, I really truly mean it when I say you're one of the best Bible teachers that I know. And I really truly mean it that I've been thinking and looking and praying for a way to have you back. And I think Purim is a great topic to discuss with you today. So welcome back to Inspiration from Zion. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm, I really, you know, you flatter me a little too much, but but I do. I love being here and I love having the conversations with you, Jonathan. Well, you and you know me well enough that you know what I'm saying isn't rhetoric sincere. I'm not <laughs> right. a rhetoric person. Right. Um, so let, let's jump in. But before we do, it's actually, oh, I, I wanted to say this. I meant to say it in, in my intro. I, I, this will be a great Purim, I have no doubt, next week. But last year, I was, I was just thinking about before we were logging in, last year I had the second best Purim in my life. I spent Purim at the Binghamton Baptist Church in uh, in Kentucky. And it was it was absolutely fascinating. I was invited to teach their school, do a whole a whole series about the Book of Esther. And it was so much fun. And I told the kids as I started, unless something miraculous happens, it will only be the second best Purim because I met my wife on Purim, uh, goodness, 1991, I think it was. Um, but anyway, th- there's so much to dig into. And, and, and in the intro, I mentioned that the story of Purim, the book of Esther, took place about 2,500 years ago. And some people will read their Bible and say, oh, yeah, book of Esther, we know that, and, and jump right in. But before we even get there, how on earth is it that 2,500 years ago, there were Jews in Persia. Well, we know from uh, the story in the uh, second Kings, uh, what happens, the end of the kingdom of, of Judea, uh, the destruction of the uh, temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple, that is done by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was uh, the emperor of Babylon. And uh, that he, he, he and this, you know, this is well known from the Bible. They come in and they destroy. And this, of course, is during the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And in their prophecies, they refer to this destruction. And in fact, it is Jeremiah who says uh, 70 years hence, the Jews will come back uh, to the land of Israel. So after and of course, at that point, Babylon is the most powerful empire in the area, in the Good Middle point. East. Right, But not that long after that amazing coup for Babylon in destroying Judea and, you know, taking over that whole part of the world, um, not long after Persia ends up conquering Babylon. So it is at that point, all these Jews are sitting in Babylon, that they come in under the authority of the Persian Empire. And as a result, Jews also start spreading around to different parts of the Persian Empire. Now, the land of Israel at the time is also under the Persian Empire, as is the former provinces that, you know, what was once Babylon, plus other areas that were Persia. Persia today, of course, is Iran. So we really, when we talk about Jews in the Persian Empire, it really means they are literally all over the Middle East. Uh, and and when we have a decree, in, as we know about in the Book of Esther, uh, the Book of Esther opens up talking about um, 127 countries. It's like 127 countries or provinces or however you want to. That have been conquered by Persia. 
and all the, the way to Ethiopia, the all the way to North Africa. I mean, not or- Ethiopia is not even right. North Africa anymore. Right. Well, the Bible tells us from India to Ethiopia. Yeah. So e- India is further to the east from Iran. Ethiopia is further to the west from Israel. But that just gives you the scope of this amazing empire. Huge. And and so this, I mean, yes, Jews left the land. Abraham took a temporary visit to, to Egypt. Joseph and then Jacob and all of Jacob's family followed and were in exile for a period. But but that was by choice. This is the first time that Jews were forcefully pushed out of the land. And then and, right. and therefore and then therefore my understanding has always been that Esther, the heroine about whom the book is written, um, we're told that she's raised by her uncle because she's an orphan. Um, right. I'm guessing we do we we do we know anything what, what happened to her parents? They're never meant her her name is meant her name is mentioned Esther Bat Avichael, the daughter of Avichael, but we don't know who 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 that was really. We know the name, we don't know who her father was, do we? No, I mean Avichael, and he's named as the uncle of Mordechai. Right. Um, so, I mean, and it's not clear was he the great uncle of Mordechai or the uncle of Mordechai. So Mordechai and Esther might be first cousins, and and he, she might be his niece. It's not that clear. Okay. But they're relatives, and he's clearly older than her, and he has taken her in. And it's not that many years that they were there after the destruction of Jerusalem. Right, because because we were able to come back seventy years later to begin building the temple. Okay, now I'm going to tell you something that you may not know, Jonathan. Obviously, I don't. <laughs> if you look in the book of Ezra, okay, now okay. what's the book of Ezra? Ezra and Nehemiah are the story of the return of the Jewish people from Babylon slash Persia, okay, yes. to the land of Israel, to Judea, and it tells us they came in different waves, etc. And and one of the things that precipitates is Cyrus, Cyrus, who was an emperor of Persia, who puts forward this decree. And, uh, and, and then the Jews start coming back to the land of Israel, but there's very few that come back. Okay. Now right. in chapter four in Ezra, it says as follows. Chapter four, um, uh, verse six. Okay. It says, and during the reign of Ahasuerus, I don't know how to say that in English. How are we saying that in English? Do you know? It's with an X, uh, Xerxes, something. Some people say it's Xerxes, but it has a word, Achashverosh, whatever. I'm saying Achashverosh. That's what that's what that's the Hebrew. We're going with the Hebrew. We're going with the Hebrew. Good. Let's try that. Okay. So during the reign of Achashverosh, at the beginning of his reign, they wrote uh, evil decrees against the. Dwellers of Judah and Jerusalem. This is a reference to the Purim story because yeah, we don't, now don't forget the Purim story, the book of Esther is written completely and totally from the perspective of the Jews living in Persia right. and about the Jews living in Persia. Right. Ezra and Nehemiah is completely about the Jews living in the land of Israel who have come from the land of Persia. Well, from the, let's say, centers of Persia to come yeah. back to the land of Israel, which is still under the empire of Persia, okay? So basically, when we learn at the beginning of the book of Esther that there are 127 countries under the empire of Persia, one of those countries is Judea in here in the land of Israel. Right. And what this does is date us because it tells us that during the time of Ezra was the time of the Purim story. 
And during that time, when it says that wrote, you know, nasty letters, it's referring to those letters that are sent by Haman all over the empire to destroy the Jews. And here they talk about it for those who was dwelling in Judah and Jerusalem, because those are the places that are of interest to the book of Ezra. But we learned from the book of Esther that it was all over all 127 nations. But what does that tell us? What that tells us is that when Mordecai and Esther and all those other Jews are sitting in Persia, they already have had the opportunity to come back to the land of Israel. Oh, right. This is after the first Jews come back under Ezra. Good. And they didn't come back. It's not written historically after the fact, like Josephus is writing in the first century about what happened. This is written at the same time. At the time. And we know, based upon the book of Ezra, puts Achashverosh after Cyrus, puts him after the time when the first Jews are allowed to go back to the land of Israel. And indeed, after what already has started to happen, you know, they, they've already at this point started to build. They built the altar already in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. They've begun the work of of restoring Jerusalem and Mordecai and Esther. And all these Jews are still sitting in Persia. Well, Sandra, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that this isn't going to be the last time that you teach me something, (laughs) Uh, not only in this podcast, but in general. Amazing. Thank you for that. That is so enlightening because honestly, I never did connect the two. Amazing. But, you know, let me just add one more thing that that there's hints in the book of Esther about something. And that I think this is something that's not often talked about. But I have I have read about this. I have heard some some uh, teachers that talk about this. And it really is very enlightening. It's really in front of us, but we don't necessarily notice it. Okay, when we are introduced to Esther, we're told that she has two names. Yes. One name is Hadassah. Hadassah comes from the Hebrew word Hadassah which is a, a, a Hebrew word for a, a particular plant, a bush, actually the myrtle bush. Myrtle, yeah. Okay, so she has an authentically Hebrew name. Mm. Her name, Esther, is a Persian name, and it's related to the Persian god Ishtar. And Mordechai is a Persian name related to the Persian god Mordok. Okay, now believe me, they were not pagans, 100%. These people were not pagans, but. No, but diaspora Jews give their children local names. That's normal. My name is Sandra. Right. You I will don't see not that in the Bible. The name Sandra anywhere in the Bible. Right. But I am a typical, I mean, I was raised as a typical American Jew, even though my parents were very much God-fearing, went to synagogue. We were Orthodox Jews from, from the get-go. And yet we lived in America. So it was very common. I also have you know, a Jewish name, but I never use it. But my my uh, ink, my regular name, my main name is an American name. Now, my name Sandra, if you want to know where it's from, the actual source of the name Sandra is Alexandra. So it's as if I'm named after Alexander the Great. Does wow. that mean that I am a believer in Greek mythology? Absolutely not. Did my parents even realize when they gave me the name Sandra that it had something to do with Alexander the Great? Absolutely not. But this is the, the source. And so I think we have to have that understanding. When we read the book of Esther, we are talking about a Jewish community that is still on the one hand identified and separate from, from the rest of the nations. They're identified enough that Haman wants to kill them and he knows who they are because they're different. There's Excellent. faithful Jews, Excellent but point. they have a level of assimilation. 
they have chosen to stay in Persia. They probably have good jobs. They probably feel very accepted in the neighborhood, you know, until Haman comes along. They're even taking on Persian names. Excellent. Excellent. I love, I love that you said that. And also a few weeks ago, I did a, a, a podcast about Moses and one of the early uh, topics that we discussed is, Mo- you know, it's funny. We have adopted Hadassah, Esther, uh, Hadassah is a Jewish name, uh, Mordechai, uh, Mos- Moses or Moshe, uh, as all being biblical, but Moses and Mordechai and Esther are diaspora names. They're, they're right. names from the lands in which the, the, the stories took place. It's fascinating. And there are probably others, but maybe we'll, we'll save that for around three <laughs> with round three with Sandra. Um, <laughs> we have just entered the month of Adar, the biblical month of Adar. And the, that's the, the, the month in which uh, Purim takes place. The book of Esther ex- express about all of this and why. And I don't know if we want to go into the details of, of the whole chronology of why Adar is significant, but, but we're counting it in, a, not, by, not on a secular calendar, but on the biblical calendar, even though they were in the diaspora. And Adar is so, I mean, we're, we're both American born, and and have our English names and and culture that we bring along with us still, but Purim is so much more significant and Adar in Israel than it is in the diaspora. We, I mean, already the first day of the month of Adar, I live across the street from a school, Uh-oh. and all day long there's music blaring from the playground. It's just fun. Talk about why and and what what that's like for you. Well, there is a statement in the Talmud that says when Adar, the month of Adar enters, or when we come into the month of Adar, we um, we should we are more joyous than normal. Okay, and, and right. the word in Hebrew is marbim besimcha. We multiply our yeah. our joy. So it's not just that we sit back and we say, oh, isn't it nice? You know, Adar is here, Purim's on the way. But there's this idea that you should seek opportunities to have more fun than usual. And that, of course, uh, is something that, you know what, I don't know how this was played out in, let's say, uh, Jewish ghettos uh, around the world, um, you know, ah. in Europe and Yemen. And I don't know how they worked on that. But, you know, very often, I think both of us as American Jews lived a kind of double life. We were living in America very much accepted in the general society. I don't think I didn't ever feel anti-Semitism. I assume you didn't feel it in any serious way either, Jonathan. Not in Uh, any serious way, but you feel it. Okay, well, I I never really experienced it personally. Um, So I was easily, you know, know, taking part in general society, but it was very clear that um, our Jewish holidays are something we celebrate in the home, in the synagogue, or in the Jewish schools. Right. It's not something you see in the street. And right. so what that means is your ability to celebrate anything to the fullest is going to be limited. And one of the things I love about living in Israel is really exemplified by what we see in Adar, where you get this sense the whole country, you know, goes crazy, you know, but yeah. in a fun way. Yeah. So all the schools, um, you know, very often, beginning with the verse of the month, uh, let's say they'll have an assembly where they're playing music and everyone's dancing. Um, the Anpurim itself, people dress up in costumes, but sometimes the, the children start dressing up even before, or they'll have all kinds of festivities that begins already at the beginning of the month. I was talking the other day to someone who's a teacher 
And she was telling me all the teachers, she actually had, had been a teacher uh, in the States and she moved to Israel and then came in for the first time as a teacher in a school in Israel. And one of the first things she was told uh, about what to expect, she says, don't expect your students to learn anything in the month of Adar. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think that's a bit of an exaggeration, but I, I would say that there's a lot of free time in Adar where instead of actually sitting and hitting the books, they're doing a lot of fun stuff, which well, I think exactly. is also educational. You know, which is it's, fun and it's educational. It's, it's embodying who we are. The uh, On the first day of Adar, I went to, you know where I'm talking about, um, um, Neve Daniel. I had to pick something up. And as I drove into the community, I saw streamers up. And I'm how wonderful the whole community is celebrating by putting streamers. And I'll never forget a few years ago, I was, I was on the light rail in Jerusalem during Adar. I don't remember before. It was probably before Purim. I don't remember. It was at night. And this big group of kids got on, teenagers. And that, that's lying. That's fine. That's lovely. And then out of the blue, they just started singing and jumping to the point that the train was rocking back and forth. And in another circumstance, that would be really annoying. But it was so amazing that here on a public train, they're rocking it on its on its uh, rails because they're celebrating the, the, the month. It was so amazing. Well, I'll tell you what happened to me this morning. Um... So this, for the, the first of the month of every month, uh, there's either one day or two days that are first of the month. And this month is two days. Also yesterday, well, last week, there were two yeah. days, okay, the, of the month. And then I, you have to do a, a few different prayers. You sing songs of praise to God Correct. when it's Correct. the first day of the month. Correct. So um, and this happened last week. You know, I'm just remembering it today. The second day, I had forgotten to sing the songs of praise with my prayers because I forgot it was the second day. Yeah. I get into my car. I turn on the radio. <laughs> and on the radio, on not a Jewish, not a religious station, on the regular, regular news station that I always listen to get my, you know, my news fix. They were about to go into the news of the hour. And just before they said to everybody, happy Adar. And they played this song, yep. you know, that we sing when, when Adar comes in, you know, everyone is joyous. Right. And this was on the regular secular radio yep. station, at which point I said to myself, oops, I yep. didn't sing those things, songs of praise. And the first thing I did when I got into the office was to start praying the songs of praise, you know, to make sure I'd gotten that in on that day. And, and on a total tangent, but uh, but this month, Adar, this year, Adar, because we're on a lunar calendar, also falls with the Islamic uh, month Ramadan. What's fascinating about being here is that also on the secular Israeli radio stations, we learn a whole lot about Ramadan. Um, whenever right. that, whenever that comes out, Sandra, right. it's always amazing to talk to you and I lose track of time. Let me take a quick break and then we're going to come right back. Do you have children or know somebody who does? If the answer is yes, you need to hear this. This year, in celebration of Israel's 75th anniversary, the Genesis 123 Foundation has launched an incredible art contest for your children and Christian children all around the world. The contest, What Israel Means to Me, gives your children the opportunity to show why Israel is special to them through art. They can draw, paint, color, or illustrate this in any way they want. The contest will be judged according to different age groups, with real prizes awarded to the winners. Please visit whatisraelmeanstome.com for details, contest rules, and how to register your child. Deadline for submission of all entries is in April, and the announcement of winners will be at a live event on May 14th. 
Please don't delay in registering your child, and please share this with others who will also want their children to participate. Visit whatisraelmeanstome.com and join us today. Okay, Sandra, as appropriate in the month of Adar, I'm having fun, and I hope everyone is feeling that sense here um, in in our conversation. It's informative and it's lively. Um, Let's talk before, I want to get into the text, but before we do, I want to give people a sense of what we're experiencing now. What are the, what are the traditions? You, we, we, I talked about the train. You just talked about the radio, um, the prayers we do wherever, wherever we are. But what, what are, if, if someone were to plop themselves down in any Jewish community in, in Israel today, what are they going to see? What are they going to feel and sense that's different and unique? Well, first of all, we're, we're just one week out from Purim. And Purim in the Bible is one day. Uh, well, there is a second day called Shushan Purim. That is a day that was celebrated in Persia itself as an extra day. But a Jewish tradition has extended it to mean that any city that was a walled city in ancient times has that, that second day as their holiday. Um, so that's two days. Okay. Yeah. Now on those two days, you don't go to school. So the children though, everybody wants to dress up in school, right? They also, they have all kinds of activities in school. So there's a third day added to the holiday <laughs> that is before Purim actually begins, which is the day that is called Purim in the school where yeah. all the kids in the country, and I mean, all the kids in the country dress up. So you already have in that week, three full days where Purim is being celebrated. And then in order to get ready for the costumes, you see everybody. Now, for me, it's less of an issue. First of all, you need to understand I'm a total party pooper. <laughs> I rarely dress up because I just uh, I just can't. On occasion, I'll put on a, a silly hat. It's okay? a good thing I didn't meet you on Purim 30-some years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you how I met my husband. I, I knew my husband before, but I always say to people, my husband, we were in college together, and yeah. he was the person who read the Megillah. He re- read cool. the book of Esther Excellent. In, in college for, for the for the service at, at the university. And so I always say I fell in love with his reading of the Esther before I, I fell it. in love with him. I Esther. love it. Thank you yeah, for sharing yeah. that. Okay, okay, now you now go back to being a party pooper. Now going back to being a party pooper. So I don't get so involved. But when I had my children, I had five children. And when they were young, this yes. was my responsibility to make sure each had a costume. Now yes. today... We have something called Amazon and we have something called, I don't know, all these, I don't even remember, Shane, and I don't know what, all these websites. My daughters-in-law are ordering costumes from wherever. They get them cheap two months in advance. It basically is very convenient because as Halloween is over, okay, then (laughs) that's the right time for us to start ordering online all the costumes. But when we were young and you didn't have this availability of ready-made costumes, we were always trying to figure out how do we, how do we turn this kid into a magician or into King Mordechai, uh, King Achashverosh or into a Queen Esther. All the girls wanted to be Queen Esther. You have to find a way to get them a long, pretty dress and a crown. So you're, you're scrambling and you're looking. And then one of the customs on the holiday is to give these lovely little food packages, whether sometimes lovely little and sometimes they're lovely huge and yes. people really go all, out, go all out. So if you're going down the streets now this week, okay, you're seeing all these tables outside the stores. True. They will Excellent. have, you know, Excellent. 
candies and cookies and, 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 uh, you know, these noisemakers and, and all kinds of nice pretty boxes that people want to buy and cellophane paper to wrap it in and ribbons. And, and it's just the, the whole atmosphere, even a whole week before is all about Purim. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that piece in. Uh, uh just you know, the shopping and, and, and everything to do with that. I remember my mother, I mean, obviously a long time ago, just making all of the costumes and, yeah, it was, uh, wow, so such great memories thinking of those. But now that the costumes are easier and different and more diverse, um, but the customs here and you feel, you feel it. Uh, you, if you, if you go also into the malls or, or, uh, you hear the Muzak is Purim mu- music and, and in the front, I, I haven't seen a bus. I haven't been paying attention, but typically the front of the buses will say happy Purim. Um, certainly in Hebrew, maybe English and even Arabic. I don't know. I don't pay attention but I'll take a look this week. Um, let, let's jump into the into some of the biblical text. And, and I, I'm going to go, by the way, I want to point out for people listening, when you spoke about the tradition of giving fruit, uh, food baskets to one another, and there was something else you, oh, celebrating on two days, that's all directly the text out of Book of Esther. Um, I, I want people to go and grab their book out when they're re, when they're listening to this, because that's all straight out of there. We're not making stuff up out of the blue. So, but let's talk about the text. There were four particular verses that I wanted to focus on because I think they're cool, but I want you to, to, to jump in. One of the phrases that we hear often, specifically you and I working with Christians, is from, is from Esther 4, verse 14, for such a time as this. Now, it's, it's very utilitarian. Uh, Esther was sa- basically, Mordecai said, if you don't step up to the plate, Someone else will bring salvation to the Jews, but you, but maybe you were called for such a time as this. And that's a great charge. That's a great motivational speech. Um, what do you find significant in that in general, but also specifically because we hear that a lot working with, with our Christian friends? So it's very funny. So as soon as you said it, I went straight to the verse and in my Bible, it's under, I, I'm a very active Bible reader. So I'm always underlining verses that are significant. And that is very much underlined. In my book. And I believe it very strongly before I even heard it referred to just that phrase for such a time as this, because when I hear Christians using it, I hear them using it in all kinds of contexts, rather divorced from the actual context that's here in the verse. But what I think we have here is a very specific thing uh, The re- tells us about the relationship between what God promises and the role the people take in that fulfillment of God's promise or prophecy or whatever. And what God is basically saying here is I have this covered. Okay. Somehow I'm going to make sure that the people of Israel survive this evil decree of Haman. The only question is who will be my partners in that endeavor. And so Mordecai is basically challenging Esther and saying, you are at a unique place at a unique time where you can be the partner. You can do this, but if you don't, you will be lost. You personally, your family, who else? Certain number of people will be lost. God will find somebody else to be his partner to ensure the salvation of the Jewish people. God never promised that Mordecai and Esther would survive. He promised that the people of Israel would survive. And we don't know how that plays out. And that's what Mordecai is saying. And I say the same thing when I talk to Christians about this idea of taking part in the fulfillment of prophecy. Like if uh, one of my favorite verses, we talk about what's going on in Israel today is in Ezekiel 36. 
Ezekiel 36, God speaks to the nation oh, through Ezekiel, and they're addressing themselves to the mountains of Israel. Mountains of Israel are places where both Jonathan and I live. He's in the mountains of Judea, and I'm in the mountains of Samaria. Okay? So if you go and you look in that verse, there, he's addressing the mountains of Israel, and he's talking about the return of the children of Israel to these mountains. And he talks about how these barren mountains will come alive again. That's right. The nation will will come back. Uh, the trees will shoot forth their branches. Everything's going to be wonderful. Okay, so now I ask you, how are the Jews supposed to come back to the mountains of Israel? Are they supposed to sit back and, and be in uh, America, Tel Aviv, or wherever they happen to be? You know, and God is just going to kind of pick them up and put them there? Or do they have to actually do something? And I think this, we can understand how this works based on this verse in Esther, okay? God is saying the Jewish people have to end up in the land of Israel, and they have to end up settling the mountains of Judea and Samaria. And we know that God gave us that opportunity to do this by guiding us in the miraculous war of 1967 and, and, and liberating the land for us. And there it is in front of us. Okay, now what happens? So I feel as if Mordecai said to me, in the same way he said to Esther, Sandra Barris, this is your opportunity to be God's partner in the settlement of Israel. You better go. And Jonathan, I'm sure you heard the same thing. It's a call to action. It's not a call to pray about it. It's a call to action. Exactly. We have to go there. We have to do something in order for God's plan to happen. And in Esther's case. Basically, God is saying, if you don't do it, I will be stuck in America. I don't know what will happen to me. Right. It could be, I will be lost. I don't know. But the restoration of the Jewish people on the mountains of Israel will happen somehow. But I will be lost. And and, and in Esther's case, she did something that was potentially life-threatening, right? If the king mm-hmm. wasn't happy, she could have gotten her head chopped off. Um, we, Absolutely. You and I didn't have that stress coming to, to Israel from America. But she did something that called to action and she rose to the occasion. Uh, I'm glad you brought that out. But I have I have other verses I want to talk about. But I think we need to have a little conversation about God here because I'm not the Bible teacher that you are and I will never ever attempt to pretend that I am. But I know that the book of Esther does not mention God. So you keep saying God's saying this and God, come on, Sandra, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, no question, it's Mordecai was saying this and Mordecai is saying this because he has a, a unique and profound understanding of God's ways. And so I'm taking advantage of his wisdom and understanding through this and through the way the story moves on that I know he's right because clearly she, she, yes, she was threatened and she risked her life by going to the king, but in the end it worked out the way it needed to work out. But um, in terms of God being in in the, in this uh, thing, in the, in the book of Esther, in the, in the book of Esther. Okay. So Right after that, also in in chapter four, uh, Esther, of course, steps up to the plate and she says to her cousin, to Mordecai, she says, "Okay, go gather all the Jews who are in Shushan. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, morning and night. And me and my I and my maidens will also fast. Then I will come to the king. Okay. now, if you think about it, there is no such thing in Judaism. And I believe also in Christianity as a fast without prayer. You fast in order to pray. And it's screaming out at us that she says, fast for me. And she never says, pray for me. So it's just kind of um, 
Mm. You know, focusing your question even more, you know, emphasizing this is a real anomaly. And uh, I believe, and this is, well, the traditional Jewish explanation to all of this is that um, the story of Purim is a story that takes place at a time where God is not directly communicating with the nation of Israel. There are no prophets. Very important, precise language you just used, not directly communicating. That's right. There are no prophets. Okay. Okay. Now, this is after the exile from, from Jerusalem. It's already a number of decades. There are a few prophets who we will meet in the Bible who are in the land of Israel, um, uh, Zechariah, Malachi, Haggai. They're in the land of Israel. Okay. And during this time and later, okay. Uh, and a little before, because it's Haggai who says, build the temple. So he's really in the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah, which is around the same time. But here in, in, in Shushan, there are no prophets. There's nobody guiding this nation at this point. So they're not getting a word from God. And I think this, therefore, this book is considered to be the classic diaspora book. Yeah. It is a classic book of how Jews handle the persecution, the threats, mm. um, how they handle them in faith, but without a direct word from God. Okay, guys, this is what you need to do right now. And it, and I think for that reason, on purpose, there's no mention of God in 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 the book. I mean, it's clear when they're when they're fasting, they're praying to God. There's no question. Okay. I love how you said that, and also, and and the same with Christians. It's not it's not a diet. This is not the this is not the Shushan right. diet, right? She wasn't no, no, no. looking fat. She wasn't looking fat and didn't want to go before the <laughs> king until she lost five pounds. Right, because she needs this fasting in order to prepare. Not again, not to lose weight. Exactly what you're saying. She's fasting and praying. Okay, but the prayer is not mentioned, even though you know it's there, because there is no such thing as a religious fast without prayer that comes with it. it it just goes together it's obvious but what we're we're seeing here is living a situation where god is not obvious okay he's not speaking to prophets there's no parting of the red sea there's no uh slaying of of the firstborn from Ahasuerus to haman and all his nothing all the people are killed by the people who do battle uh and it, it just unfolds in such a miraculous way that Esther is able to change the mind of Ahasuerus so that he in turn turns against Haman and he empowers Esther and Mordechai to enable the Jews to fight and defend themselves. Okay, so you may say, oh, what does this have to do with God? But it's in the Bible and it's telling us, of course, it has to do with God. So God got best supporting actor in in the book of Esther because he's there, but he's not mentioned. And I love how you just said, because it was exactly the word I was thinking about. This is empowering and it's an important message today. Something you were saying just a few moments ago made me think, oh, being that this is the, like the classic diaspora um, uh, situation. We know that there's a tremendous um, visible rise of anti-Semitism going on in the diaspora around the world. We live with that on a daily basis from our neighbors. That's normal. But there's but but Jews in the diaspora are very threatened by this, very fearful, and and actually maybe this is a great message that people need to highlight in their uh, Bibles and read and pray intensely and maybe even fast. Well, we do fast the day before, also. 
Uh, right. That maybe that needs to be our fasting the day before Purim. We need to be fasting because because this needs to be an empowering moment, not a cowering moment. Absolutely, and I think the very fact you know there's a tradition in uh, in the it's mentioned in the Talmud that Esther goes before the elders. Now there is a very important religious hierarchy at the time, rabbis yeah. and scribes. And they are leading the Jewish people. And our tradition tells us the Mordechai was a member of that council. Uh, and it's Esther who comes forward and says to this council of men, and she says, you need to write this story so that for generations, yes, uh, people will understand its message. And they agree and they write the story and it is later included in the Bible. Right. So that in and of itself is, you have to understand the story may it, it, you can't take it for granted that the story would have even uh, be written and maintained if it wasn't for the human initiative here to Excellent. say, no, 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 this is a story. In other words, for them, in order for them to agree to write the story and to include it, they need to, to believe that God's presence was here. That it was miraculous. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Amazing. Amazing. Um, we're going to take another break and then pick up some other, some other uh, text. If you're like most people in the world, you know about the Holocaust, but never met, much less interacted with the Holocaust survivor or heard their stories of suffering and survival. With the remaining elderly survivors dying at an unprecedented pace, in less than a generation, there will be none alive. Yet, while they did survive, and for that we need to celebrate them, many still suffer trauma from their youth. As they age, they have increasing needs. And living on fixed incomes, sometimes with no pension, things as simple and essential as basic foods, heating in the winter, medicine, and inflation can push someone over the line from surviving to struggling again. It can create stress in their lives that reminds them of the suffering they endured as young people. It's just not acceptable that anyone who suffered as much should struggle with basic needs or any undue stress in their twilight years. I want to invite you to join the Genesis 123 Foundation to bless the survivors. Yes, we pray that you'll donate personally and do so generously. And when you do, we also give you the opportunity to send your personal blessings and words of encouragement to the survivors themselves to brighten their day and let them feel your love. Having been privileged to provide financial resources to help survivors on a day-to-day basis, I know it makes a difference and is very appreciated. But your personal note that we translate into Hebrew, Russian, or Yiddish really makes them smile and warms their heart. I pray you'll join us by going to genesis123.co slash hug a survivor. That's genesis123.co slash hug a survivor, and please share this with others. We can't undo the suffering that they endured, and there's no limit to what the needs are, but we can never do too much to comfort them in their final years. Please join us. God bless you. Okay, Sandra, one of the other verses, thank you. This has been so enjoyable and, and informative, and, and, I, and I'm glad to let some of my best friends around the world listen along. One of my favorite verses, and, and maybe it goes to that empowering moment that we were just speaking about, is verse six, uh, chapter 6, verse 13. Now, one of the things I happen to love about it is if you pull out the colon between the 6 and the 13, you have 613, which is the number of commandments that we have. And 613 says, 
that Haman comes home after a really bad day at the office and then tells his wife um, and, and his supporters is the translation that I'm looking at about everything that happened, everything that had befallen him. And his wife says to him, if Mordecai before you, before whom you have begun to fall is of the progeny of the Jews, you will not prevail against him. Rather, you will fall before him. Now that is like the polar opposite of a wife saying, oh dear, sorry, and pouring him a drink. That's like bad stuff. Now, and in terms of empowering, she's realizing that. That always strikes me. How does she know that? That's so, it's so, what's your, what's your thought on that whole, that whole verse? I don't know. This to me is like one of those moments that I, I, I cannot explain it rationally. Because if you think about it, um, you know, if I, if I see this in its historical context, um, at this point, I mean, you know, Israel has been destroyed and, and the, the Jews are in exile. Yes, there is a bit of an, a reawakening in Judea. But if you go back to the book of Ezra, you'll see it's not so simple. They're having a lot of trouble. Uh, and it's certainly, you certainly are nowhere near going back to the times of the great kings of Israel and, you know, the, the amazing times of, of, of Israel and Judea with, with their kings and et cetera not to mention uh, Solomon's temple. So on the one hand, you might think, well, this is bizarre. Where is she getting that from? Okay. On the other hand, you could say, well, you know, there are some Jews who have returned to Israel and they're beginning to build a temple. I I don't think it's coming from there, though, because there's not enough practical kind of background that would give her that. I believe that this is one of those places where God is intervening, where God is giving her some kind of a sense. Like we talked about, God is not evident in the book of Esther, but he's there pulling the strings in the background. And I think this is one of those times where she's speaking the words, but God has kind of placed those words in her mouth. I don't see how she would possibly have come up with that on her own. But to what, to what point? I mean, God placing those words or, or, or her having an epiphany, just to rub his nose in it? No, I, I mean, think it's or, a foreshadowing. Or to put the bank accounts all in her name now? <laughs> no, I, he doesn't pay attention to it. Because right uh, after Excellent, that, wow. Excellent. Right after that, they, see, this is the thing. He, where is he coming? He's coming to talk about two different things, okay? He was warned. First, he's coming to talk about the fact that he has just been, he hates Mordecai. And his whole plan is going to kill Mordecai. And he has hatched this whole plan to kill the whole Jews because he hates Mordecai. And what did he just have to do? He had to parade Mordecai as if he's the lowly servant. He has to parade Mordecai through the streets of Shushan where he's on the royal horse with a crown and and regal clothes. And he's feeling incredibly, incredibly, you know, embarrassed. Okay. Humiliated. Right. But then what happens? he, he gets this invitation to come and have a meal with the queen. So it's like, okay, you know, he's coming home humiliated and his wife is kind of saying, oh, now I get it. Okay, I, I, I know why you're humiliated because Mordecai's on his way up. He's just on the horse. You're down, right? You're, he's on the <laughs> horse, right? And then the next second, they come in from the king, from the queen saying, you're invited, Haman, you're invited to this, you know, regal meal with the queen and so at that point he ignores her what do you know he says look you see 
Mordecai's not invited to dine with the queen. I am. And so he ignores her. But this is in the text because it's a foreshadowing. It's amazing. And it's giving, I, I never looked at it from this perspective. It was giving him a warning and he could have theoretically, in a human perspective, backed down and said, all right, I need to think about that. But then now as you're saying it, Sandra, I'm thinking there's even something that's, that we, if we rewind a, a, a 1500 or so, 1000 or 1500 years, we see God intervening directly with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, yes, you're going to go take all your people and go out. And then God hardens his heart. And then a moment later, he's saying, oh, no, this is the inverse, right? It's not, it's, he comes home and he's feeling bad and dejected and she's not helping. And then he, and then it's the, oh, no, I was right all all along. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep going along my, uh, my, my plan. No, it's true. And it, and it's, I, it, I think exactly what you're saying. It is God hardening his heart. There's only one thing. The verse that says, and God hardened, not hardened, but let's say, and God, you know, um, yeah, God hardened his heart so that he could not listen to his wife, Zeresh. Okay. He, he couldn't that, listen. He couldn't see that, it. And that he was going verse on. is missing here. Yeah. But it's there in the background. It's there. Something. Right. Right. Either that or he was just crazy and couldn't and and couldn't begin to uh to think it amazing um we were speaking before about um something there was something we I, I, something you said maybe maybe we already went through this verse uh chapter 8 16 when we're now we're now nearing the end of our story the salvation has come and the language, I love the language, and I want to talk about you specifically with the language, but also context, that for the Jews, there'll be light and joy and gladness. Now, though, those are great things, and I want to talk about that, but I don't want to forget, because I want to ask your thought. Every week, we remember this after Shabbat ends, and we do what's called Havdalah, the, 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 the ceremony, the, the ritual between the conclusion of Shabbat and the beginning of the week again. And in our prayer, we, we say there will be light and joy and gladness. Talk about that. So it, that's very interesting about that. First of all, what's the Havdalah ceremony? The Havdalah ceremony is the separation from Shabbat. And it's the ceremony from the that sanctity, I, from the sacred. Right. So it identifies the fact that there's, there's two different kinds of days. There's a Shabbat day and a regular day. And right. what we're doing now is transitioning from the Shabbat day with its extra holiness to a regular day. And in part of the prayer, we talk about other divisions that God has created. And there's a division between light and dark. And there's a, dis- dis- uh, a division between uh, light, uh, well, light and dark and, and happiness and non-happiness and a, div- a vision between the Jews and the nations. Okay. Two different roles, two different identities. And so I think the reason we put this verse here into, into the Havdalah ceremony is because it's attaching to the fact that there's light and there's darkness. And here we're saying, and the Jews at that point had light. They had joy. Okay. And we add three words in Hebrew. Those three words are saying, we turn to God and we say, we also want to partake of the same kind of of light, uh, a joy, happiness, and joy. We want. We also want to want to have that. Yeah. And I think that this is this is really um, 
for us every week when we return to this point, again, if we talked about the um, the uh, time, the Purim holiday is a holiday of the diaspora, a holiday that says to us so much about what diaspora Jewry went through, Jews in exile went through for thousands of years. Uh, I think this is that it, it kind of uh, connects to that because we're remembering a time when they were on the verge of darkness and the darkness threatened to envelop all of the Jews and kill them and they came out ahead and therefore they came out in light and in joy. And so this Havdalah ceremony, which is a ceremony that was established in the diaspora, okay, because it talks about, it's kind of, yeah, Shabbat is like the, the refuge from all our troubles. In the background of this Havdalah ceremony, you are hearing Jews who are suffering persecution and are seeing the refuge of Shabbat as a refuge from persecution and now are basically saying to God, okay, we understand the difference between happy times and sad times, but please, God, do to us what you did to the Jews of ancient Persia. We also want to be in the light and in the joy. We don't want to have to face the persecution. It's and I amazing. think that's very much what's going on there in the Havdalah. That's amazing because uh, when, again, now going back to a Exodus from Egypt uh, analogy, but but throughout our daily prayers, we are, and Passover, which is in a month, we are not just remembering, we're commanded. It's an obligation to remember the Exodus from Egypt. And, and as if we were ourselves slaves leaving from Egypt. Now, you're, you're, perspective which is fabulous is every friday every saturday night we say let there be light and joy and glad we there was, there's light and joy and gladness and let that be for us in parentheses as it was for the jews of persia which is not a biblical commandment to remember the salvation of the jews of persia but we're doing whether we're conscious of it or not every single week absolutely and i don't think it's even a I don't think it's a memory kind of thing. I think here it is, um, it's an encouragement. I think the book of Uh Esther is a book of encouragement. It's saying to us, don't look for, just because you're living in a situation where you don't have a prophet and you don't have a parting of the Red Sea and you don't have a revelation at Sinai and you're feeling alone, you're being persecuted as a Jew and you're wondering, where is God? This is what the book of Esther is telling us. God is here. God is looking after you, even if you don't see him. And even in the darkest of nights, you are going to say, no, God, please give us the same joy and salvation that you gave to the Jews of Persia. It is a story of encouragement, a story of hope. And this book itself, being in the Bible, gives us the understanding that God really doesn't leave us alone. And he will ultimately provide us with salvation, even though we may go through difficult times in the interim. And even when we're not seeing or hearing from them directly. Amazing. Thank you. I want to begin to wrap up. Um, Let's come back. Not just Sandra, you being as you are, and this has been great. And I have not overinflated your expertise in Bible teaching today. Um, But we both work with Christians on a daily basis as a privilege. Um, What's the message? What's the theme for Christians uniquely, specifically connecting who, who are connecting to Israel and the Jewish people that comes out of the book of Esther? Well, aside from what we talked about earlier in chapter four, the the importance to to go, and in other words, I talked about why I left Cleveland and I went to settle the mountains of Israel. 
I take that inspiration from, you know, what we saw in verse four, if not for a time, if not for a time like this, if, or whatever, if only for a time like this, yeah. but um, I believe that this is a call that Christians can also heed, that it's a lesson for Christians when they look around. The, the book of Esther is telling us the same kind of thing, Jews and Christians. Look at your world. Don't wait for a prophet or for an extreme miracle, okay? Look at your world and see God working in this world. Take your cues from what God is doing in this world to understand what you need to do. And look, I may be biased, we may both be biased, but I think for us, certainly everything that's happening in the land of Israel, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of the Jewish people into the land of Israel is just nothing short of amazing. It's awesome. It's like the greatest miracle of all time. And I think for anyone, Jew or Christian, who reads the Bible and understands the context and how miraculous this is and how this is really a fulfillment of God's promises and of all the prophecies. And we're seeing this happen before our eyes. This is God calling to us. Now, he may not be tapping you on your shoulder, literally, okay? You may not, there may not be a prophet in the streets calling out to you in the middle of Oklahoma saying, okay, everybody, this is what you're doing. We're all gonna help Israel. But by reading the book of Esther, the message you need to take out is read the newspaper. God is speaking to you through the newspaper and that should give you the cues you need to get on the side of God and to be the human part of the fulfillment of prophecy. You know, if you don't, you know, what does Mordecai said to Esther? If you are silent at a time like this, salvation yeah. will come to the Jews from another place, but you and the house of your father will be lost. And I think every person, Christian and Jew alike, can read that and understand where they need to be with regard to Israel today. I love it. Thank you, Sandra. I want to wrap up. We, we, we've partnered and doing some things together over the years probably not enough um but with great mutual respect and admiration from for what we're both doing and, and complementary things um but one of the things that we are and i'm so thrilled that you're a part of um this month we've launched the what what israel means to me art contest um, for christian children and i'm thrilled that you're going to be one of the judges when we begin next month to uh to evaluate and, and award prizes. Um, we, we chatted about that by email or WhatsApp or whatever method we did. We haven't spoken about it, but what's significant about that? You work with Christians all over the world, literally. Um, we're giving now Christian kids all over the world an opportunity to express what Israel means to them. What, what's significant about that to you? I think that what's significant is the kids, the fact that it's children. And one of the things that I'm encountering, and I actually, I just, recently came back from a trip to the United States and had conversation with Christian friends about this. There's a real problem in the next generation. And, you know, the people that I am in touch with are, are not youngsters anymore. They have a passion for Israel that is absolutely unrivaled. It's amazing. But when we meet the younger generation, we're not seeing that with the same passion. In fact, unfortunately, when we talk about college students, very often influenced by the nastiness and the the anti-Israel rhetoric that is so prevalent on college campuses. And so what I think is so vital in what you're doing, Jonathan, is that you're reaching out to children and you're giving them the opportunity to express something very personal through their own art, but expressing it about Israel. And I'm hoping that this will be just the beginning of an instilling yeah. a love for Israel in the hearts and minds of these young children. So when they get older and they go to college, they won't be so poisoned. Yes. They will be coming from a completely different place because Israel has already entered their souls through their yeah, that's beautiful. 
that's good. Thank you. First of all, thank you for that affirmation. That means a lot. But I, uh, but I agree with you. And I, I personally, I'm just itching to see all of this art I, in whatever form it comes. I think it's going to be absolutely fabulous. Sandra, I do not want to forget before we let you go. Um, where do people reach CFOIC Heartland and how can they check out what you're doing? Well, um, you can send me an email, Sandra at CFOIC.com and check out our website, CFOIC.com, which stands for Christian Friends of Israeli Communities. And I welcome anyone, please send me an email. Tell me what you thought of our conversation. If you have any questions, I'd love to engage, get to know you and work together with you so that we can settle Judea and Samaria. Beautiful. Sandra, as really, as always, it's a true pleasure um, informative, inspiring, fun, and a good and a good month in which to do something that's fun. Thank you for for coming back again on Inspiration from Zion. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, people who've been following the the conversation, Inspiration from Zion, for the last year plus, you know that we've been offering uh, a special gift at the end of every uh, every episode. Um, we call it from Jonathan's bookshelf. All we ask is that you do is go to the inspiration from Zion social media and like and follow us. And when you comment or share the link to this program, we will select one person each month at random to receive a new book from Jonathan's bookshelf. This month, I'm very excited. I know Sandra knows the author. We're giving away a copy of Your Sabbath Invitation, which was written by our friend uh, David Necrutman. And it's amazing. And I'm not going to go into that, but it's a great book and worth having on your bookshelf as well. We're always grateful for that. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Willow Run Greenhouse in Culpeper, Virginia. If you're ever in the area and want to stay high and thank them for this program, you should pop in and do so. Also, thanks to the Coin family as well for their meaningful sponsorship. Inspiration from Zion and all the Genesis 123 Foundation programs are made possible by donations. So please consider to make a donation to continue the dialogue and building bridges. This episode is sponsored by my friend, Dr. Tyler Simmet, in honor or, or for a full and speedy recovery for his mother, Sabina, um, who's not well. A few years ago, we had the privilege of dedicating a program in memory of Tyler's father. And today we're praying that his mother will have a full recovery. If you'd like to sponsor a future episode in honor or memory of a loved one or special occasion, please be in touch with us at inspirationfromzion at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your comments always as part of the dialogue and invite you to send any questions as well, especially questions you have about traditional Judaism for our Ask the Rabbi programs and Bible studies with, with Sandra. Please share this uh, program with others who will also find it of interest and continue to join us right here as we bring you more meaningful conversations about unique topics relating to Israel that you won't hear anywhere else. Wherever you are in the world, I pray that you and your loved ones are all safe and healthy. I wish you a joyous Purim and send my blessings from right here in the Judean Mountains. God bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.